Hello and welcome to The Price of Football, the show that looks at the money behind the beautiful game with me, Kevin Day, and Liverpool University's Kieran Maguire, both still quite emotional at having actually seen each other on Friday, albeit it was in Brighton, so I couldn't wait to leave. It's, <laughs> it's actually easier to get a tattoo there now, to get chips. What's going on in that town? It's, it's, it, it, it's Ink Central, isn't it? It's yeah. absolutely amazing. Wow. Yeah, you get an inflatable unicorn, you get a packet of chips and some candy floss. No, you cannot. It's questions day, Kieran, but there's one big news story to catch up on, of course, after congratulating Brentford and Chelsea. Big day in West London and all over Surrey for Chelsea fans. Um, <laughs> and hopefully by the end of this pod, which which we've timed badly, we'll be able to say congratulations to Blackpool and Lincoln, second half of which is on the way as we speak. People never, people never talk about Blackpool and Lincoln, the, the playoff to get in the Champions. They never say that's the second most expensive game in the world, do they, Kieran? They're always talking about the Premier League playoff, most expensive game in the world. No one seems to worry about this one. Well, this one is uh, still a, a game changer uh, for both of these clubs, potentially, because you're going to go from a TV deal, which is worth about one to one and a half million pounds, to one which is worth seven to eight. So, you, so you're, you're multiplying by a factor of five. And of course, you're now just one step away from the Premier League and and all of the excitement that brings. So, uh, you know, I, w- I wish I've I've got affections for both clubs. Clearly, uh, my, my history as an employer in in Blackpool um, was uh, whilst whilst it was short lived, it was certainly an experience. And uh, uh, I've got to know the people at Lincoln extremely well uh, because they're big fans of the podcast. And uh, in terms of how to run a club? They, they, you know, they're part of my five-star team, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, and Brentford fans would probably be happier getting promoted this year than the last, because they'll be able to see their team in the Premier League this year. Uh, anyway, that that elusive news story that I mentioned way back before we started ad living, which neither of us should do, uh, it's the outcome of the National League vote of no confidence, Kieran. Yes, um, the uh, the vote was uh, defeated. Mm. The uh, the National League board have survived the vote of no confidence, and uh, they they went out and said the result is convic is is convince is oh good good <laughs> the result is convincing. I like um, convincing. I like convincing. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, and I guess it is convincing in terms of votes, but the reason for this was that uh, lines were very much split dependent upon which division you're in. Mm. So as far as the National League itself was concerned, where it is one club, one vote, there was almost unanimous support for the board. Um, once you dropped into National League uh, North and South, uh, the situation was reversed. So in terms mm. of... The, the way that the clubs effectively voted, it was 33 clubs in favour and 33 clubs against. Mm. But because the clubs in National League North and South only get four votes per division, it ended up as only seven votes uh, uh, against the board. Um, and if that was the case, you know, the first thing you do is you start, you come out with something a little bit more conciliatory uh, rather than the rather triumphalist mm. uh, you know the, the the result is convincing oh fucking hell uh, <laughs> <laughs> you haven't you haven't even got a hangover as an excuse <laughs> now un- unlike the baroness no i haven't uh-huh, really 
<laughs> yes, we, we we went out for a tapas meal last night, and uh, the uh, the Baroness went for the uh, the wine flight. Well, and I don't even know what a wine flight is, Kevin. Um, as, as well as a few uh, a few straighteners beforehand, um, and uh, she's uh, she's she's feeling a bit delicate. Yeah, um, you, you don't need to know what the wine flight is, Kieran. Just you just strap yourself in for the wine flight. It doesn't matter where you land. Doesn't matter where you land in the end. It's fine. <laughs> uh, so this, I mean, essentially, Kieran, this is neither convincing, convincing, or convincing. It, it's <laughs> yes. it's it's the result of a voting anomaly. I mean, it's a straightforward fifty-fifty split. And as you say, it doesn't suit them to to be distranceless. What you sh- should be looking for after a vote like this is. Clearly, some clubs are upset. Clearly, there are issues. Clearly, there are communication problems. But instead, they're out there punching the air, aren't they? Yes. Uh, I mean, it, it does say that the National League Board acknowledges the importance of working collectively with member clubs. Well, the, the trouble is that the league is is split uh, yeah. very significantly. Um, there, there does appear to be some conflicts of interest. And I think one of the things which came through with our discussion with Andy Holt on, on the Thursday show yeah. was he said he felt very uncomfortable about individual clubs uh, being able to effectively or be, having having their executives voted onto the, the, the senior mm. board because they get to know what's happening before the other clubs, which gives them a competitive advantage. Um, and, and there is, yeah, there is rampant self-interest in football. And I don't have an issue with that. We, we, we've all got an element of self-interest in all aspects of our lives. But uh, whether this is for the greater good, I'm, I'm not so certain. So um, the, I think the, the ship is holed but not sunk would be, would be my view as, as far as where we are with the National League at present. But do you think, Kieran, this is one of those issues that come September, October, please God, and they're all back to 100% capacity, they're all getting match day income, uh, they're all getting their broadcasting income again. It's one of those things that will be forgotten that people say, well, it happened in unusual circumstances during the pandemic and now... We're back on track, or do you think this is going to leave lasting resentments and attempts to get the constitution changed? I, I don't think the constitution will be changed because for that to take place, that the National League teams themselves would ha- would have to go to a vote, and, and they're not going to vote to yeah, dilute uh, yeah, their degree of control of and power. Yeah. Um, so uh, it, it is unlikely. Um, you know, as we have seen with uh, Dominic Cummings, uh, grudges can last a long time, mm. and uh, and and w- will spill out in some other way, shape, or form later on, unless you you get people around the table, you listen, and uh, you, you you try to go forward and say, well, ultimately, what what are we all looking for, um, and try to to try to find some common ground. Never mind. Dominic Cummings might be upset, but Boris Johnson got married in a Catholic cathedral yesterday, which is proof positive that my mum's not paying attention in heaven because we haven't had any, <laughs> we've had no thunderstorms, earthquakes, or anything like. That. Um, I know producer Guy will be listening to this because we're right at the start of the podcast, and he gets five minutes in before he goes off, starts counting stuff, and comes back five minutes from the end. So um, we, we've discussed it. We're, we're going to try and get some of our uh, friends in the National League to come on and have a, a brief five-minute chat about the outcome and maybe get two people who voted on in different directions just to see what they think the future will be. Now, let's um, 
Let's take a deep breath, Kieran, because we're going in deep with these questions. Um, <laughs> they're, they're long ones today, aren't we? We've got they, essays. They are, but they're funny enough. They're, I, I always look to try and well, I always look to try and get Guy to sub them down beforehand. But you know, he's he's got too many channels on his TV. I reckon he hasn't got time to do that sort of thing. But sometimes, <laughs> you, sometimes even with my literary skills, you just have to ask the whole question because otherwise you don't get the full context for it. And the first one comes from Tom Morgan. Um, and it's kind of it, it, it's something that's underpinned most pods that we do, Kieran. But it's it's never something that we've actually answered in detail this way. Tom Morgan is doing an A level EPQ on the finances of football. Um, good luck with that. Uh, uh, could you explain, says Tom, the ways in which your nouveau riche teams like PSG, Chelsea, and Man City are able to get round the FFP financial fair play regulations, whereas teams like my QPR are tangled in and ruined by it? I'm, I'm guessing, Tom, the simple answer is because of the size of those nouveau riches. Um, I think that is a contributory factor. Clearly, the the wealthier the club, the the smarter the lawyers that you can uh, employ to put forward your case. And uh, you know, one of the things I've learned over the past couple of years is that having uh, a brief who is well briefed and and is persuasive and knowledgeable certainly is going to help your your position. Having whoa, whoa, said, whoa, whoa. That, hang on a second, Kieran. When did that happen? What? 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 This is your. We're talking about Uncle Terry's brief, or you've your brief here. <laughs> no, I'm talking about sort of you know, general football finance. Oh, uh, you, just, you just had me worried then. I thought, God, <laughs> I was worried about getting a subpoena or some kind of American style <laughs> demand to come to court and give evidence. Um, I, I, my personal view is that Queens Park Rangers got an excellent settlement. Uh, when oh, okay. when they were charged because they didn't have a points deduction. They did go up to the Premier League. And although the um, the headlines was it was a £42 million settlement, when I went through the small print, and uh, as you believe, uh, as you're fully aware, I, I, I like small print, uh, and also the fact that uh, the, the, the QPR uh, defending team was headed by our very good friend, Nick DeMarco, of whom mm. I have the highest regard. Um, half of the settlement was effectively converting loans which could never be repaid into shares. So that, so that cost them nothing. Um, yes, they had to pay the EFL's fees. Um, then they had to go and pay, I think it's sort of 13 or 14 million pounds, but effectively spread over 18 years. So it, it's not the same as having to put out a large amount of cash up front and they did get the benefit of a year in the Premier League plus four years of parachute payments. So, so Queen's Park Rangers made an awful lot of money out of the year in which they breached mm. uh, financial fair play. So I, I don't think they were as, as hard done as, uh, as Tom seems to believe. And then when we take a look at PSG, City and Chelsea, um, they all have been subject to sanctions by uh, by UEFA. Admittedly, not necessarily as significant as UEFA would have liked, but they've all been subject to uh, large fines. Uh, we're talking millions upon millions of euros. Um, they've had to put through salary caps. They've had the, the size of their squads reduced for years in which they were in the Champions League. And, and it certainly impacted upon the clubs in terms of the progress or lack of in that competition. So um, it, it comes down to 
uh, ha- having having a good legal team and mm. also having not breached the rules in the first place. I think the issue with with Queens Park Rangers was that the year in which they they were subject to the the FFP challenge, um, their wage bill was I think it was over twice that of any mm. other club in mm. in the championship that season, and they certainly had a competitive advantage. Now, lots of people say that Manchester City and PSG and Chelsea have had competitive advantages as well, um, but all. All, all of those clubs that we have named have all been subject to various forms of penalties. Um, could the PSG and Manchester City owners afford the the financial fines uh, more easily than Queens Park Rangers? Without doubt, but they, they should that be taken into consideration? You know, if, if you and I, or let's say that you and I and producer guy, if we all go and get caught doing 35 miles an hour in a 30, 35, 30 mile zone, um, should we be subject to different fines simply because um, we've got different levels of income? Yeah, well, that's a good point. I'd, I'd be subject to a massive fine because I can't drive. So I really, <laughs> if I was doing 35 miles an hour. And I think we should point out, Kieran, you do like small print in the same way that the Baroness likes a wine flight. Let's not judge either of you. <laughs> uh, and uh, Tom, good luck with your exams. I hope that helped. I suspect it, it didn't really. But the FFP is one of those things, Kieran, whoever you support, you will think that your team has been hard done by it while everybody else is, is getting away with it, really. And that's partly because it's quite a difficult situation to decipher, really, isn't it? Anyway, um, Johnny Foster, uh, that was a profound thing to say wasn't it it's quite a difficult thing to cope with isn't it mm. uh johnny foster has one of those simple questions that i really like uh, uh one of those questions that you think I, I really want to know the answer to this one and he asks does johnny foster how is money transferred between clubs is there an invoice sent for a player transfer for example with the seller's bank details on the bottom which is, I, I quite like that idea that it's like the invoice that we optimistically sent a guy once every six months uh, also, how are fines paid, and what happens if there are insufficient funds in the in the account? I mean, it's a good question. Though. I can't imagine Man United getting a text like I do most mornings saying, "Please put <laughs> insufficient funds by two p.m." <laughs> um, well, yeah, this is this is an intriguing question from Johnny. Um, when it comes to international transfers. Historically, there have been a lot of problems, and the reason behind those problems is due to something what we refer to as training compensation. If a player is transferred under the age of 23, then the the side which he originally played for when he was a kid and as part of his development is, is due some form of compensation. And what FIFA were finding was that an, an awful lot of that compensation was not being paid by the by the club that was uh, buying the player. And it was proving to be an absolute pain in the backside because if you are having to, if you are a small club in Poland and, and one of your players has ended up going to Real Madrid or Borussia Dortmund mm. or, or Newcastle, wherever it's going to be, actually trying to get money out of these clubs is, is really hard. And, and, it's, and it's similar in other works of other lines of business. If you're a small supplier who is supplying a big grocery store, and I won't name names, they are complete pains in the arse to deal with. Um, And and when I used to do insolvency work uh, way back when, you know, as you know, I'm in sort of, I was based in the Northwest for most of my life. Um, And we used to uh, end up doing quite a few administrations of 
the rag trade, you know, the, the, oh, yeah. the clothes yeah, yeah. manufacturing. Yeah. And um, there is one very well-known clothing retailer, uh, which used to be very famous for uh, selling nearly all of its products, which were which were uh, which were made in the UK, and they were an absolute nightmare to deal with in terms of, yes, they, it's, it's great to get the contract from them, but trying to get money out of them yeah. uh, once, once they deliver the – and, of course, for, cash flow is critical to business. You know, so yep. we, 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 we talk on this show about profit and, and so on. Um, you know, profit, schmoffit, it's cash flow. that Cash is king in business. Mm. Um, and, and similarly for these small football clubs. So, um, you know, I, I, I give FIFA a fair amount of stick – but uh, to give them some credit, one thing which they have very recently done is that they've set up a clearinghouse. So where where there are international transfers, what FIFA will do is they will say, well, this player is being transferred from clubs A to B. We've got the player's history in our books because every time he's transferred, he gets logged into the system. And we, but the money has to come to us. So the buying club pays the money to FIFA who then distributes it to all of the relevant parties. So, so that actually works in theory particularly well. Um, and yeah, I, I have seen proposals to link this to things such as blockchain and uh, uber nerdy uh, type, types of stuff. Um, when it comes what, to... Kieran, Kieran, what currency is that paid in then? Um, well, it will be paid normally in the currency of the selling club. So if, right. if Juventus are selling to a club in the Premier League, then as, as far as Juventus are concerned, you know, they are expecting to be paid okay. eighty million euro, and right. they don't give a they don't give a hoot. So um, it would normally be uh, sorted in, in in the currency of of the of the selling club. So would um, you get would you get buying clubs then waiting a few days just for a more favourable exchange rate, for example? Well, they they wouldn't be party to I mean they could get a little bit more or less than they'd anticipated mm. if there are movements in the exchange rate between the date of the transfer going through and the date that uh, FIFA get round to, to making the distribution uh, but it, but it shouldn't be significant unless right, okay. you're dealing with a, uh, a a country with a very fastly a very quickly yeah. uh, devaluing currency because I, rem- I remember I went to Peru uh, in the late eighties, and, and we went into the, uh, uh, we, we went. I went to the Manu National Reserve to go and uh, I, I, was, I was, I was, I was trying to find some giant river otters, and, and I went in with a load of Peruvian money uh, into the Andes, uh, not into the Andes, sorry, into this uh, tributary of the Amazon, um, and I came out six days later covered in bites, but I had seen the the giant river otters, which I was absolutely delighted about, and the uh, I think the these I was about five or six hundred dollars worth or pounds worth of Peruvian currency. In the meantime, there had been a military coup in Peru and all of my money was worthless. (laughs) (laughs) I can only apologise to those of you playing FYP bingo today because ain't ain't none of you got giant river otters. That was... uh, Every now and again, I'll go in and Ali will say, did he mention that? I'll say, yeah, he mentioned that. Never, giant river otters. Never. <laughs> You're the only accountant I know who could blunder his way into a military coup whilst looking, apparently, for giant river otters in the middle of, in the middle of Peru. Things just happen around you, Kieran, don't they? It's, uh, 
It's amazing. It, it was, yeah. it, it, but but seeing seeing that that mother otter with uh, four cups was uh, oh. yeah, it was a transcendental moment, baby. I, I I love otters because they look like cats in the water. I, I think otters <laughs> right. are lovely. I also this is this is really by the by. Also get very cross with uh, wind in the willows because they call their baby otter portly. It's, you can't label a kid like that. Oh, with, no. That's all. Right. Anyway, in the unlikely event that, that there aren't insufficient funds in the account of a, of a Premier League team to pay the giant <laughs> – sorry, carry on. I'll be, I'll be back with you in a second, Keir. I'll be fine. <laughs> right, yeah. Well, I mean, if, if the buying club fails to make the payment in time, then it goes – then it would have to go to a tribunal – um, and there is there are ombudsmen, and there, there is both within UEFA and FIFA, um, you know, bodies which uh, which have to deal with this. And we'll be looking at one of those disputes a little bit later in this show, I think. Hmm. Um, Kieran, you're the multitasker in this relationship, so can can you keep an eye on the the uh, Lincoln Blackpool score for us? Right, yeah. Uh, just so, so it sounds quite exciting. Sounds like I mean, obviously, by the time people listen to this, they'll be they'll be fully aware of the score, or they'll be going, "Oh, I didn't, I'd forgotten that game oh, was on." Black, Blackboard two one up. Are they? Oh, okay. Right. Yeah, yeah. Um, Mike Terry has a question about kits. Uh, as you know, questions about kits will always be asked, especially retro ones. That's uh, retro kits, not retro questions. Um, <laughs> Older fans like me, says Mike, yearn for remakes of the great Adidas Admiral and match winner shirts from seasons past. Although some clubs do this, but what is there preventing a team like Notts County, for example, from doing it? Is it manufacturers holding copyright or is it such a niche market that a minimum order number is prohibitive? Well, I think uh, Mike's probably hit, hit nail on head. There is normally some demand for these kits and if we take a look at some of the the classic kits uh, that I think it was referring to yeah we, we've seen the uh, yeah the England 1974 and 78 world cup kits they mm. are they always tend to be quite popular um what normally happens is that if you want to use the badge of the football association then potentially you have to get a license um, and I believe that there is now a company, called, and, we, and we're not on any commission from this, by the way, there's a company called Score Draw, which uh, has, has gone into that market in quite a big way um, to, to try to sort of get some of the classic Umbro and Adidas kits uh, going, because you know, mm. England have had some brilliant kits over the years, um, as have Scotland and, and, and mm. of course, individual clubs. Um the 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 present uh, manufacturers tend to be a little bit cautious about um, retro kits because a you've got to go and set up a a, a new uh, a new line in the factory for them so you know that that's going to that's going to slow things down um, and, and b to a certain extent you're in danger of cannibalizing um, your yeah, yeah. your brand new product <laughs> so. Um, Yes, they will be prepared to do some, um, but uh, th- there are issues in terms of who has the intellectual property in terms of both the badge and the design, although that, that can be worked around. Um, but I think Mike also you know, hit, hit the nail on the head in the sense that, um, yes, it could be that a, a few a few blokes of advanced ages, shall we say, uh, have a nostalgic and emotional relationship with a kit from a particular season. But 
will that actually be of any interest to to people who are younger? Um, but we are we are seeing a huge interest in in some sort of classic kits. You know, the uh, the Netherlands kit of nineteen eighty eight when they mm. won the European Championships is is, is an absolute classic. And uh, I, I think the the manufacturers are now starting to realise that and and are sort of doing limited editions uh, in the years of the World Cup and Euros to to meet that demand. Well, also for some of the older shirts, the manufacturers would have to find a lot of cotton. There's- <laughs> Yes. Somebody bought me a seventy-six palette shirt with this. I don't know how they wore it. You can't get it wet. You'll never get it. Just, um, and before people tweet in, by the way, when Kieran talks about the England World Cup kits of 74, 78, he means the qualifying kits. We didn't. Yes, uh, we did actually play in the <laughs> yes. finals of those tournaments. So <laughs> yes, we did. We are aware of those things. Don't worry. <laughs> um, Philip Story has the sort of question that you like, Kieran. It's straightforward, down the line Yorkshire question. And Philip Story's question is this: What do you think of the Barnsley owners? especially the ones from overseas. They're presumed to be very wealthy, but we know nothing about them, says Philip. Yes. Um, the, the the main guy, as far as Barnsley is concerned, uh, appears to be a gentleman called Chien Li, um, a, a very successful entrepreneur and um, a multiple club owner. So he's he's trying to go down the City Football Group route um, with a view to uh, gen- ha- exploiting the benefits of that, and I think we we have sort of concluded that there are benefits in terms of having a sort of a global template uh, in terms of player development. He he certainly sniffed round a few other clubs before finally buying Barnsley, Hull, Middlesbrough, Brentford. I know at three that he was linked with, um, and he's linked up with. Um, Billy Bean, who is is famous, of course, in baseball for the Moneyball system, mm. uh, and sort of these two guys together feel very much that their uh, interest and enthusiasm for data analytics again, it's something we have discussed on on more than one occasion, um, is going to uh, allow them to recruit and develop players to. To push things on, so you know, Barnsley had a, had a very good season considering their resources, um, and it was noticeable. Barnsley's accounts came out um, actually earlier this week, and, and as you can imagine, that got me excited. Mm. Um, and that they certainly are investing more money in players with a view to uh, you know re- re- recouping that from from player sales. So. Um, I, th- I think for me, that there's there's nothing necessarily to be worried about. I mean, Barnsley is now owned by BFC Investments Limited, which is based in Hong Kong, but that's not necessarily a good thing or a bad thing. It's it's just a thing. Um, it, it is further evidence of the commoditization of football players. They they mm. are seen as uh, as widgets to buy and sell, and uh, that's that's always made me feel slightly uncomfortable mm. but uh yeah I, I, am i just being a bit naive uh, in in that respect no you're being a human being kieran um liam blaney has a question which will be of interest to all palace fans listening because it seems to be how we do our business season upon season liam blaney's question is is there any legitimate financial reason why a club would leave doing their transfer business to the last moment or is it just to give sky something to talk about on deadline day, I quite like the idea that Sky are giving clubs backhanders to hold their transfers. <laughs> Jim, Jim White handing out brown paper bags full of cash on a motorway service station somewhere. But it's a, it's a question that, I mean, Steve Parrish, we asked him Steve Parrish's question once on a pod, 
And he said it's it's nothing to do with finances. It's more to do with the nature of transfers in that quite often a club is looking to buy their fourth or fifth choice on the last day of the transfer season because their first, second and third choices have, have fallen through. But it seems to be that there's only one or two clubs doing business like that. So you can't help wondering whether there is, as Liam says, a legitimate financial reason why some clubs do seem to do all their business on the last day of the, the window. Well, if you saw my uh, mind map in front of me, it says first, second, third and fourth choice. We are we are, we, we know each other too well, Kevin, in oh, regards Lord. to yeah. this. Um, but I, I think there are there are some uh, ancillary issues as well. Um, the later you leave it in the uh, in, in the transfer window, the less you have to pay in wages. Because remember, once you've signed the player, of he's, he's your employee from that date. So um, if, if you can defer the signing, uh, then that could save you four or six, eight, so, yeah, four, six, eight weeks of wages. Um, that is a considerable sum of money, especially in the Premier League. Um, what we also have is uh, a game of who blinks first as far yeah. as transfer negotiations are concerned. Uh, a club's put in a bid, uh, it's been rejected, and now um, you know th- there's an element of gumbo diplomacy taking place here uh, in the sense that uh, is, uh, is there a way of extracting you know, a second or third or a fourth bid for a player that you really want? Um, keep saying no, especially if you don't need to sell. And then there's the the domino effect in the sense that yes, finally you you do sell a player at six pm on transfer de- deadline day, which means that you've now got a hole in your squad. So therefore, you've got three or four hours in which to to, to fill that hole yourself. So so you get this sort of uh, you know, this whirly gig taking place in in the final few hours as uh, it's 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 a money go round. Uh, from a financial perspective, so th- there are financial considerations, but I think you know Steve Parrish, who's clearly clearly been involved in this thing, and the coalface far more than we have, is is absolutely right that um, you you're not just looking to sign a player; you're, you're looking to sign a player from a choice of four, and, and you've got your preference. And as if that preference goes elsewhere, then you've got to turn your attention, um, and and your, yeah, the sands of time are, are slowly going down. Yeah, or you could be the sort of club that tries to attract your first choice uh, before the end of the season rather than having to rely on the fifth choice. But let's, let's not turn this into a Palace pod. Um, roughly this time last year, Kieran, I remember distinctly saying that I hoped we wouldn't still be talking about this story 365 days later, yet here we are, unfortunately, and David Manley has asked us the question um, by pointing out it's now more than two years since the the tragic death of Emiliano Sala and the pilot of the plane he was flying in. Uh, David says, I believe Cardiff were ordered by FIFA to pay not what was owed, but I'm not sure if that's happened yet. So how is the saga affecting both clubs financially? And if Cardiff haven't paid, what sort of punishment could FIFA enforce on a club side? Right. Um... Excuse me. Emiliano Sala, and you're absolutely right. You know, people don't talk about the pilot, and then that should be really. Yeah, but, but both mm. of these, both of these young men had families and, and loved ones, and, and they've they've been sadly lost. Um, the the nature of the transfer was that Cardiff were due to pay a six million euro deposit, five million euros a year later, and five million euros uh, in a further twelve months, plus a potential one million euros should. 
uh, had had uh, Cardiff City avoided relegation. So um, if, if you go onto the FIFA website, they, there's about a, there's about a twenty page document uh, when when FIFA did investigate this, and um, the selling club. Um, um, the selling club uh, went to FIFA and said, we, we've not been paid the deposit. And FIFA looked at the documentation and they said, well, as far as we are concerned, Emiliano Sala was a Cardiff City football player and you have failed to pay the uh, that initial deposit. So we are going to charge you. You've got to pay immediately six million euros plus interest mm. and then fifa said and, and when this ruling went through the second installment at that point in time was not due so they said we cannot force cardiff to pay the second and third installments because there is no due date so um at present we don't know whether cardiff city have made the the second or third installments um but they they certainly should have made the first installment by the looks of this un- unless there was an appeal and uh, I- i've seen nothing on the fifa website to to that effect but uh, you know sometimes these things of course take place behind closed doors mm. um n- n- as we've said on more than one occasion, neither party has come out of this with with any credit. Uh, you know, I appreciate we're operating in a world of money, but you know, from from the sake of you know, humanity, for heaven's yeah. sake, some some of some of the rhetoric coming out from uh, the two football clubs and uh, Emiliano Sala's agent was uh, just very distasteful indeed. Yeah. This is a human being; it is not a piece of meat; it is not a mm. car; it is not a computer. Um, you know, re- remember that. Hi, I'm Steve Lamack, and every week I'm joined by Music Allies Head of Insights, Stuart Dredge, on The Price of Music, the weekly podcast all about the money behind the music industry. In each episode, we discuss the very latest goings-on in the music business and dig into the finances behind the big stories. So whether you're a music lover who just wants to know more about what really goes on in the industry, or you're an aspiring musician, manager or label owner who wants some inside knowledge on how Spotify's financial model really works, or what the future holds for independent live music venues, this is a show for you. Subscribe to The Price of Music in your podcast app now. See you soon. Mm. Uh, well, yeah, please, God, let us not be talking about it this time next year as well. Um, Paul Doddymead asks this question. Before Christmas, says Paul, Fenway put forward a plan to restructure the Premier League to increase their revenues, Project Restart. This was rejected. They were then one of the driving forces of the Super League. Their strategy to reform the industry for their own aggrandizement seems to have failed. And their appeal, there appears to be little synergy with baseball anymore. Do you think pressure will now grow on Fenway from private equity, institutional investors, analysts, etc., to divest their interest in Liverpool? It's a question that a lot of Liverpool fans would love to know the answer to. Yeah, it, it's an intriguing one. That, that um, FSG have done a lot for Liverpool. Certainly, we've had the expansion of the ground. Yeah. Um, they. Trophies have been delivered, you know, yeah, Champions yeah, League yeah. and the Premier League. So, so that those are are both positives. Um, it, it's quite clear from comments from John Henry before Project Big Picture was uh, leaked that he wanted some form of concentration of power, control, and wealth in the hands of a few people, which you know, we're all entitled to our beliefs. Um, 
FSG acquired Liverpool for three hundred million pounds. They could sell Liverpool today, in my view, for at, at least two billion. So the, wow, they really? they could take that. Yeah, yeah, they, yeah they, they could make a, a very tidy profit should they so desire. I, I think the issue now is given that Super League is is at best can be described as floundering. Remember, it's still not dead. We, no, we've no, still no, no. got. Uh, we've still got Barcelona, Real Madrid, and Juventus doing a, a you know a chemical alley. There's you know there's no, there's no problem here. Um, uh, routine. So, uh, but but I think the the general sentiment is is that if something is going to take place, and you know if if we if we're still doing this nonsense in in five or ten years, we you know we, we could be having a similar conversation to to Super League. Um, I don't think it's going to occur in a hurry. So therefore, are Liverpool at maximum value from FSG's point of view? Because there was, there was no doubt that if, if Super League had taken place, then the concentration of wealth in the, in the hands of relatively few clubs would have increased the value of Liverpool as a product, as, as, a, as an investment. Now that Super League isn't going to take place and they, they can't go take control of the domestic game under Project Big Picture, which was their other uh, mm. aim, um, where is the growth uh, from, from a financial perspective as far as Liverpool is concerned? If we have reached peak or plateau, then there's a case for saying, well, you know, perhaps we ought to be looking at, is this the best use of our money, especially if we could sell the club for £2 billion? You know, we've got a, effectively a 600-700% return on our investment. Uh, that, that's, that's pretty damn good. Mm. And we'll focus more on US franchise sports for whom the culture is something with which we are more familiar. Uh, and what about Paul Doddymid's sort of the example of outside influences? Are, are there outside influences that would encourage them to offload? Um, yes, I mean, if pri- private equity companies are just looking for a financial return, right? So they will say to FSG, if if if, if there are outside investors, um, we we rely on you to look after a portfolio of investments on our behalf. If you don't think you can extract any more money from Liverpool Football Club, what the hell are you doing carrying you know carrying it on right. your books? Uh, why not sell them and buy something which has got more opportunities for growth? What if Super League had been nodded through, and we were planning for it now? What would Liverpool be worth now? Um, I, I think you could add fifty percent onto the value because wow. the you know, Liverpool is a fantastic brand. Um, the the big uh, the big elephant in the room, which which I always felt got under discussed, was that when you went through the small print of both Super League and Project Big Picture, it was the ability of the clubs to sell the TV rights direct yeah. to fans. Yeah. So you know, let's let's say that Liverpool have got you know, Manchester United claim to have 1.1 billion fans. Now, I take that with a pinch of salt. Let's say that Liverpool have got 300 million fans, and they sell they they sell you know 10 percent. Uh, to 10% of their fan base, and they get them to, to stump up £10 for, a, for an individual match. That's £300 million per match. Liverpool's total revenue last year was around about £470 million. Wow. So therefore, they could make more money from two TV matches than they get in a full season. Wow. And that was what was driving both Big Picture and Super League, but it seemed to fly under the radar. Mm. 
if if they are worth two billion pound now, as you say, who who out there has got that sort of money at the moment? I mean, could anybody put that sort of money? Are, are there hundreds of equity companies that could find that, or are we too? Oh, yeah. about, oh yeah, there yeah. are. So, it's, oh, it's, right. it's 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 not an issue. Uh, yeah, we, we saw uh, Amazon have just brought uh, a big movie studio during mm. the week. I think you know that. We, we we fall into this trap of thinking that the football industry is a big industry. It's not, you know. And, and I I go back to the mm, that, that nerd point I, I brought out last week that the total wages of the Premier League since it started, plus the total transfer fees paid, is less than one year's worth of income for Bet Three Six Five. Football is a small industry mm. with a big social footprint in terms of its its media footprint. Mm. Jamie McAllister has this question. Apart from it making logical sense, would it have made financial sense to scrap the League Cup, Carabao Cup, at the beginning of the season, factoring in that there are no spectators and the first months of the season may have been a little less hectic? Um, I, I, I think possibly not, because... Yeah, Captain Hindsight, who appears to be uh, a, a new a new British character, uh, following revelations in the Commons this week. Um, with Captain Hindsight, we might take that that view that perhaps it should have been scrapped. But at, if we go back to August, you know, we, we were thinking about crowds of two thousand. We were having these pilot schemes. That's I think true. everybody yeah, yeah. thought oh, there's not going to be a second wave, and we would start to to ramp up uh, in terms of attendances. Um, the thing about the Carabao Cup, which again doesn't get a lot of attention, is that the it is the EFL's competition. Now, the EFL TV deal with Sky is worth. £119 million a year. Depending upon who you talk to, somewhere between one-third and two-thirds of that money is actually down to the Carabao Cup. And you oh. might be saying, well, hold on. Yeah, that seems a bit odd. But, um, yeah, the Carabao Cup, Cup final was, uh, you know, Manchester City won it. Um, the, there were some big matches taking place between Premier League clubs. If you... Yeah, I, I I love the I, I love the championship and League One and League Two and, and before you say it, you know, as a Brighton fan, I, I don't have much choice in not loving them, um, given our history. Um, but if we take a look at the championship, if it's Reading versus Middlesbrough, who's going to be watching it? If it's you know, if it's if it's Barnsley versus Bournemouth. Yeah, the, you know, Sky's got the TV deal, but Sky will be saying, well, "Well, actually, yeah, thanks very much, guys." There's nobody actually watching. Yeah. So, um, if if you then got the Carabao Cup, and and there always tend to be you know, a few cracking uh, cracking fixtures um, involving the big six, and, and we're not denying that. Yeah, they are drivers. Um, this is why um, I think the EFL probably did the right thing in not scrapping that because in a year in which their clubs were suffering huge financial difficulties to say that um, we're going to have to forego somewhere between a third and two thirds of our TV deal on top of that would have made what has been a fairly challenging year uh, far worse. So, um, you know, the collateral is that players get fatigued, increased injuries, but, you know, as, as I think we've established already during the show, uh, football players are just commodities. Yeah, mm. They're not human beings. Mm. Uh, anybody who just started listening to the pod at that 
point. Kieran is not saying football is a commodity. That was in context, just in case you think this is a really <laughs> cruel accountant there. Uh, I've introduced you, Gary. I, I'll tell you who watches the Carabao Cup. That's the, me, the first round. I always watch the first round of the Carabao Cup because you were still excited that football was back. <laughs> yes. Basically. It was like, sometimes it was a week before the season even started. That was great. Um, thank you for that question, Jamie. It's acted as a sort of sorbet between the Liverpool course and the Man United course, <laughs> which is which is coming up. We have a question from Kieran Walsh. Um, and Kieran says, bearing in mind the Glazer family MO has been switching borrowing to cheaper loans since their takeover of Manchester United. I'm surprised they haven't availed themselves of the Bank of England COVID corporate financing facility, which is something we've talked about a lot recently. Would it have anything to do with conditions restricting senior executives' pay? Likewise, would it make it harder for dividends and consultation fees to be paid if the club underperformed financially? Yeah, uh, it's a it's a valid point as far as uh, Kieran is concerned. Um Again, if you, if you go to the Bank of England CCFF loan page, which is very thorough and very well organised, um, dive into the small print and it says, first of all, these loans are only available to private companies. Now, Manchester United is a public limited company. Its shares are traded on, on a stock market. So that's one reason why you can't have it. And secondly, um, the the loans are not available to uh to, to any institution which is funded via a leveraged buyout, i.e. you effectively take out a mortgage oh, okay. to buy the company. Right, okay. Now, Manchester United would therefore fail that particular category, as would Burnley, in my opinion, as well. Yeah. Um, the, the other conditions, material UK contrib- material contribution to the UK economy, absolutely, yeah, Manchester United, you know, knock that one out of the park. Does it have a good credit rating? Well, the very fact that Manchester United can now borrow money at uh, you know two and a quarter to three and three quarters percent to me suggests that they do have a cr- good credit rating so they, they satisfy a couple of the conditions but not the others in terms of the issue of executive pay um I, I, yeah, again i think this would be a, a concern for the bank of england because as we've established manchester united pay dividends of around about twenty-two million pounds a year, whether they make a profit or whether they make a loss, and, and, and you know, a significant proportion of that money goes to the Glazer family. Um, I, I think there could have been some potential pushback from the Bank of England uh, in respect of that as well. Mm. You, you know that diving straight into the small print thing you're always encouraging me to do. Do you do you ever <laughs> do you ever look at the big print on the way? I'm worried. I'm worried you might miss something, Kieran, by going straight for the small print. There might be something glaringly obvious. <laughs> Just, just see that really. <laughs> <laughs> um, penultimate question comes from Matt Houghton. Uh, Matt Houghton supports a club that you're always very supportive of yourself, Kieran. Um, he's a Tranmere fan. And Matt's question is, how much money does my club Tranmere make by allowing Liverpool FC women's team to play their home matches at Prenton Park? Is it financially rewarding enough to have the extra burden put on the pitch? Right. Um, I went into... Uh, Tranmere's accounts, um, and yeah, five stars for them, very thorough. Um, Mark Palios has has a very good summary of of the state of the finances. Um, And and, uh, I was fortunate enough to listen to to a Mark Palios masterclass to our MBA students recently. He he is a very, very knowledgeable guy all around. Um, 
Tranmere uh, in, the, in, the, in their 2020 account said it, it cost them around about £50,000 to do extra work in terms of relaying the pitch and, and improving the pitch. It, it was, was a bit of a bog. So did the women's football contribute to that? Well, a little bit, I think. But, you know, in my view, I don't think that would be hugely significant. Um, I then went into the LFC women's football team's accounts and I went into the small print um, <laughs> and uh, it did say that the, the team spent a total of £102,000 uh, in terms of rental paid. Now, whether that was just to tram or whether it included some other facilities as well, it wasn't laid out. So it looks as if. Um, yeah, if, if they paid one hundred and two thousand, I, I think Tranmere would have had some financial benefit from hosting those matches. And remember, on top of the rental paid by LFC, um, presumably Tranmere would have had the sort of the catering rights and the the you know the, the, the sale of uh, the, the sale of other things uh, on, on match days, which would, would have further boosted their revenues. Um, so on balance, um, I, I would say that uh, that Tranmere Rovers are better off financially from uh, hosting Liverpool's uh, matches hmm. um, at, at their at their own facilities. Um, I'm sure in due course, um, you know, I, I presume this will happen. Yeah, if I'm honest, I think uh, Liverpool Liverpool women's team would have to return to the the, the top tier of uh, women's Super League. Um, that there will be some matches taking place uh, at uh, at Anfield. I'm about to say Aintree there, um, <laughs> but uh, well, I, I, to be fair, the way Liverpool have treated their women's team, they could be playing at Aintree. So, well, yeah, um, it, yeah. It, it, as further proof that we've been married too long, Kieran, I've written down catering rights uh, question oh, mark. Well, so, yeah. so essentially, for that money that Liverpool FC women's team pay to Tranmere. The only revenue they're getting then is the gate income from fans who turn up to watch the game. Everything else, it seems, is going to Tranmere. Yeah, I, I would imagine so. I mean, presumably there will be some merchandise. Yeah, there'll, there'll be a pop-up merchandise store uh, right, okay. at the match, and, and that money would go to Liverpool. But uh, I think sort of the the, the core catering uh, revenues would just be kept in-house by Tranmere. Um, otherwise, I think it, the, the complications of Liverpool having to bring in their own, uh, you know, food and drink for for an individual match and then ship them out again—it's it's, just—it's just not worth the aggravation mm. in terms of the margins given the uh, give, given the attendances at these matches. And that seems like a decent deal for Tramway because I, I mean I'm not sure how you quantify or put a value on the wear and tear on a pitch, but you, you would imagine it wouldn't take much repair after. Uh, a, an extra game, well, probably what extra ten games a season. So that seems like a decent deal. Um, uh, Blackpool, Lincoln, Kieran, any update? Uh, yeah, Blackpool two, Lincoln City one, full time. Congratulations to Blackpool. Uh, given what they have been through uh, in terms of their ownership, yeah. um, I'm absolutely delighted for them. Commiserations to, to Lincoln. Uh, you know, I'm, they, they've made fantastic progress in recent years. Yeah, and. Um, Blackpool fans are a model example with their "Not a Penny More" campaign on how you absolutely brilliant yeah. how you can take someone down if they're messing with your club. Now, our, our final our final question, Kieran. Uh, I, I suspect maybe from Guy under an assumed name uh, because <laughs> we we don't often get a question that defends these particular people. But but Jason Williams is the person who asked it, and he quite rightly. Or wrongly, we'll see what happens when you when you've heard the question. Um, leaps to the defence of 
some people that get some stick on this pod. So Jason says, why are property developers vilified on the price of football? I'm not one myself, just curious, which I believe used to be your catchphrase, Kieran. Um, (laughs) uh, But Jason says, often Kieran will do some background research on someone, find they have a history in a development company, and alarm bells will start ringing. If someone wants to invest in a club to improve and make profit, is that such a bad thing? Surely any investment is good. Steve Morgan, who purchased Wolves in 2004, made no secret of being a property developer or a Liverpool fan, but he built a new stand, invested money, got promotion, left the club in a better position than he found it. Now, I, I think I know the answer to this, Kieran. I'm guessing it's it's because you've always said, you know, if property developers are buying a club, it's sometimes because the deal comes with a nice, juicy bit of inner-city real estate tacked on but i'll be in I'll, I'll be interested to hear how you deal with jason williams question and it is a fair enough question there's no reason why we should, we should ve- we should vilify them more than any yeah. other wrong who takes over clubs and, and drives them into the ground yeah I've, I've not i've not heard that that first phrase you you muttered since since my days at the pink coconut that is a long <laughs> long time ago um I've, I've changed i'll say no more than that um, well that's that's what i say to accountants kieran i'm, I'm not i'm not one myself i'm just i'm just curious <laughs> just just one just one little spreadsheet and let's see how i take it it'll be fine <laughs> Um, As, yeah, can I point out how happy you were, by the way? I think I think our listeners know us well enough to know this that uh, Ali was production manager of the show that I directed in Brighton, and, and Kieran couldn't have been couldn't have been happier. I could not have seen a man smile more when we were sat in the lovely outdoor bar afterwards, basking in the fact that we were in actual human company after watching a show with actual people. When Ali asked if Kieran could give us some spreadsheet advice. On a, oh yes, on a, on yeah. A, I'm, a, I'm looking forward to, to new, playing with that. Yeah, a, yeah. New, a new project that she's doing that needs a spreadsheet. <laughs> Kira was in, Kira was in heaven. <laughs> we had words on the journey home, Kira. You'll, you'll, you'll understand. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. But anyway, so uh, Jason Williams, and, he, and he's quite right. We do, we do constantly say that alarm bells. I mean, there's certain phrases, you know, bought for a pound. Property developers. These are these are phrases that do set the alarm bells ringing. Jason's quite right. Yeah, there are there are good and bad property developers. Um, just as there are good and bad people in in all lines of profession, I, I think the issue that we have is that for most property developers, they see an exit route uh, from from a football club. Um, the reason why property developers historically have been attracted to football clubs is that. Uh, clubs have been there for a long, long time. And, and we've said on more than one occasion, football started as a working class sport where guys were coming out of factories, the pubs were closed on a Saturday afternoon, and it was an alternative place for them to go. And the wives mm. were absolutely, you know, the wives didn't want them in the houses. <laughs> so, you know, they, they, they'd send them off to the football. Um, so therefore, we're looking at something which is central, which is, you know, from a from a property development point of view, is desirable. They tend to be quite close to stations a lot mm, of the time, mm. so really good transport links. And if you can take a football ground and you can convert it into retail or residential, then you potentially are looking at rentals coming in 365 days a year. They're being utilised all the time. Football grounds are really football. Football is a really dumb industry. You're open 20 to 30 times a year. The rest of the time, you know, you know, what's Selhurst doing? What's what's the Amex doing? What's Anfield doing? Mm. It's just sitting there, and and yes, it's pretty, and yes, it's a, it's 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 a testament to the history and the heritage of, of the local culture, and that's the reason why we all love it. 
from a financial point of view, it's it's just wasted space. It's mm. wasted time. So property developers see that potential. Now, as far as Steve Morgan and Wolves is concerned, um, he he did leave it in in a better. He, he still left it in. It was four. It was it's fourteenth in the championship when Foson took over. Mm. So you know, and Wolves had been down to League One. They'd been up and down, but but Wolves, Wolverhampton Wanderers. If you were to say, if, if I was not often asked this question of people, where do you think your natural position mm. in the football hierarchy is? And you know, for a club like Wolves, I'd probably say lower half of the Premier League, top six of the Championship. Yeah, they're mm. they're, they're that type of club. So. Um, Steve, Steve Morgan uh, did the deal. You know, Steve Morgan didn't come out of this penniless either. Um, if we take a look at other clubs, and I've been looking at some issues recently, Wealdstone, Berkhamstead, if we go back to some of the issues that, that Crystal Palace have had in terms of you know people messing around with the property, if you look mm. at what happened to uh, West Ham and the Bowling, Mm. The, the West Ham owners sold it effectively to property developers for 40 million quid who immediately sold it on to somebody else for 60. Yeah, a lot of money to be made. If I look at my club, Brighton, we sold the Goldstone ground in 1996 for £9 million. It was immediately sold on for 27. So the reason why you don't feel comfortable about uh, praising property developers is because they are looking to flip something that and if 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 that also involves moving the football club and everything that you hold close to your heart you know you you and I we both said it that our moving from one ground to another you don't don't want it to happen it it might be a bit of a dump at times but it's our dump and it's and that dump which we which we have as part of our lives has got 50 years of shared experiences and memories and that's what you don't want to give up property developers yeah they're not interested in that you know we, we if, if I can if I can shift this club's ground to fight to an out of town site um and use this for for retail or residential and make a lot of profit then then so be it and you know the memories and the history and the heritage well yeah that that's somebody else's problem mm. there are still issues at sellers park now with building the new stand because of leasehold freehold ownership issues dating back to 1990 so as you say these these are things um <clears throat> it occurred to me kieran and i don't know if we can do this uh impromptu that we did promise Sutton fans we'd, we'd mentioned uh, the economic implications of their promotion uh, today. I'm happy to wait till um, our next pod to do that, Kieran. Or can we, can we do that? No, I, I, I can very quickly summarise it. Let's uh, do that. Let's do far... that. We did. We did promise Sutton fans. So yeah. Um, as far as the the movement from the National League to the EFL is concerned, um, Sutton will now be in receipt of what's referred to as. Um, solidarity payments. They'll, they'll get a share of the Premier League TV deal. They'll get a share of the uh, £119 million a year uh, EFL deal as well. Um, so so that will benefit them by a, a seven-figure sum. So you know, the, the overall benefit is, is you know, a, a good million pounds. Um, so you know, good, good luck to them. And, and it's always great to see a new club coming into the, the football pyramid um, because it's it is part of the romance for all fans, you know, and everybody I think who who are neutrals will be keeping an extra eye on mm. on their progress this season, just as we have done in respect of Harrogate and Barrow. And it's it's such a shame for the fans of 
both of those clubs mm. who who have you know come into the uh, EFL and haven't been able to see their their teams play in in the in the, in the you know up the professional mm. echelons of English football. But Sutton do have a Harrogate type situation as well though because they're going to have to rip up their four G pitch, aren't they? Which yes, yeah, and and that's their biggest asset. If you, if, if uh, I, I did take a look at their their balance sheet and, and went into the uh, the supporting notes, and it, and it does appear to be their most valuable asset. So so that is a shame. Um, you know, th- th- I think there has been a debate. Uh, so, you know, Harrogate had to do this twelve months ago. Um, is is there a case to three G in in professional football? Yeah, the, the view of club owners, the view of managers, and I think players is that they'd rather not have it. We do have it in Scotland as far mm. as the Premiership, and um, I think it's fair to say that the uh, the perception there is mixed. It's it's a it's a revenue earner for for those clubs that have it. Um, you, you talk to the likes of Steven Gerrard, and, and he's, you know, he's he's not happy with the, uh, uh, you know, with, with the with what he perceives as a, as a potential for injury there. Um, I, I once played on Oldham's pitch um, mm. when they had a plastic pitch, and it was I appreciate this was many years ago. It was horrible, absolutely horrible. What position did you play, Kieran? Um, I I played uh, on the left wing, which is quite mm. appropriate, really. Um, and uh, it was we, – we had a match against Oldham Supporters Club, which took place – it kicked off at 12.30, and Brighton were playing at Oldham at 3 o'clock. So um, <laughs> mm. we, we, we were the warm-up act. Um, I scored in the last minute uh, at the Oldham end – ran 90 <laughs> yards to celebrate in front of the Brighton fans, not realising that the referee had blown up for offside. So was... oh, that's very funny. Um, just by way of a taster for our next pod, Kieran, one of our big news stories involves Scotland um, and Celtic and Rangers B team, so we will bring you more on that. Uh, and then, of course, our pod after that will be our next questions one. If you have any questions whatsoever on any aspect of football finance, and it's questions at priceoffootball.com. And in the meantime, I know 99.9% of you will be enjoying this stupid sunshine, so I hope you carry on having a lovely, warm time. But I shall leave you in the capable hands of Kieran McGuire to say goodbye. Well, once again, folks, thank you so much for your support and your feedback. And uh, it, it, it it does genuinely amuse us when, when we see some of the comments. You are a, uh, you, you hold us to an account uh, in a way which, which other audiences don't. And, and that's great. That's absolutely great. If you enjoy the show, if you can click on that purple uh, icon button for Apple Podcasts or Spotify and give us a five-star review, it helps produce a guy in terms of where we are in the tables uh, and it helps us to, to book the guests as well. So other than that, enjoy this wonderful weather we've had after a long, long wait and look after yourselves. Yeah, and just quickly, Kieran, in terms of uh, listener feedback, can we 100% ascertain that giant river otters was not a euphemism? <laughs> Absolutely. This was generally giant otters in a river. Yes. Oh, yeah, okay. yeah, it's, yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you've got the Manu National, uh, Manu National Reserve in Peru. You, you'll, you'll find it there. Yeah. Chris Packham will now say all otters are in the river. So, and I'll say no, apart from the ones that are in the sea. Um, I, Chris Packham and I don't get on, Kieran. I'll tell you that story next pod. Um, oh. all right. <laughs> nice to see you. Bye, everybody. Bye.
provide some photo ball.